0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21 this morning, and you can find it on page 1018 in the Pew Bibles. I was recently directed by another pastor to this online article entitled, After Inerrancy, Evangelicals and the Bible in a Postmodern Age. It was developed by this uh, group called BioLogos, whose aim is to invite the church and the world to see the harmony between science and the biblical faith, which is in and of itself a noble thing, and yet they do that as they present an evolutionary understanding of God's creation. And and so just to be clear, I I can't commend that site to you. But in this article, After Inerrancy, the author states... I write for evangelicals who either believe or suspect that our tradition has painted itself into an intellectual corner. The church has been down this road before. In the 16th and 17th centuries, it mistakenly criticized Copernicus and Galileo because of their scientific views were deemed unbiblical. And just as the evidence finally came crashing down on church dogma in those days, so in ours, the facts are stacking up quickly against fundamentalist beliefs in creation science and in the kind of biblical inerrancy that supports it. While there were, was perhaps a period in history where, when evangelicals could deny the substance of these new theories because the available evidence seemed thin, it seems to me that we have now crossed an evidential threshold— "...that makes it intellectually unsuitable to defend some of the standard dogmas the conservative evangelical tradition holds. Holding fast to these old dogmas merely perpetuates the intellectual disaster of fundamentalism and the scandal of the evangelical mind." The intellectual cul-de-sac in which evangelicalism finds itself can be traced back to many causes, but it seems clear, at least to me, that a fundamental cause of the scandal is its doctrine of Scripture. Often, this doctrine involves a strict adherence to Biblicism, And you know it's bad when they add an ism, right? If you don't like something, you want to make it seem bad, add an ism to it. Biblicism, it's bad, right? It goes on to this belief that the Bible provides inerrant access to the truth about everything it touches on from biology, physics, and astronomy to psychology, history, and theology, in more progressive evangelical circles, inerrancy is sometimes defined more delicately in a way that allows the non-biblical evidence to carry more weight in our reflection, but even here, the subtle influence of inerrancy sometimes engenders poor or at least inferior judgments about science, history, human beings, and theology. In the pages that follow, I will briefly explain why conventional evangelical understandings of Scripture simply cannot be right. I will also survey some of the important resources that can help the church get its bearings in a world without biblicistic inerrancy. Now, I don't know exactly what he means when he says biblicistic, but you can tell by the addition of all of the suffixes that that's a really, really bad thing. And as you continue to read through the article, I'm I'm kind of half surprised he didn't just keep heaping them on, you know, like biblicistic, fragilistic, expialidocious, just so it's abundantly clear that this is a bad, bad thing. But he goes on and says without hesitation that biblical inerrancy is an intellectual disaster. The authority and inerrancy of Scripture has been under constant attack throughout the history of mankind, but especially over the last two or three centuries. And so it's not really surprising that we would have to deal with it, that we would encounter it in our day as well. These attacks have resulted in a move away from evangelicalism to more of a a liberal or a neo-orthodox view of Scripture in a a rejection or a minimization or a redefinition and, and reduction of God's revelation, of the full inspiration of the Bible and of the unity of Scripture. And so it's important for us to take this time to understand, to defend, and even more importantly, to celebrate the Word of God that we have been given. So last week, we began this four-week series unpacking our understanding of the doctrine of Scripture from our statement of faith, and it should appear up here on the screen for us. We, Redeemer Church, believe that the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God. Therefore, all Scripture is authoritative, infallible, and without error. The Scriptures are the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. So just to be clear, that author hates that statement. Okay? So last week, I dealt with the first sentence in our statement of faith, looking at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And we covered under that the doctrines of the revelation of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and the unity of Scripture. If we, God's creation, are to truly know and to understand who God is, what He has, what He is, and what He is going to do, we cannot aspire to that right understanding on our own. We can't just work from us outward to get a good and accurate picture of who God is. That's how every false and contradicting worldview, every false religion is formed because man is trying to work his way to God. If we are going to understand God, it's because God has to disclose himself to us. And this revelation requires more than just creation what we can learn about God and creation around us. It requires more than the spiritual and moral qualities of man. It requires more than being able to see evidence of God's divine governance and His common grace towards us that's presented throughout history. It requires more than than holding to uh, human religious tradition or the working of the Holy Spirit apart from God's Word. God doesn't just make himself known to us personally through encounters or individual spiritual experiences as God acts in mighty ways. No, God objectively, truthfully, accurately, and propositionally makes himself known through words, faithful words, true words, words through which we can know him. Words that he inspires, words that he breathes out, words that can be faithfully communicated and written down for generation after generation after generation after generation generation so that they too might come to know God. So that they might continue in sound teaching and sound doctrine through faith in Christ for good works until at last their salvation is made complete in the day of the Lord. Since God has revealed Himself, since He has inspired not just the writings, but also the authors in His Word, we cannot throw out or disregard any Scripture that God has given us. So we must hold to the unity of Scripture. All of it tells the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, of God's eternal purpose to redeem His people to Himself through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that his people might live with him forever in his glory. It all testifies to that end. And because that is true, because what we talked about in Second Timothy 3.16, that all scriptures God-breathed, because that is true, we can safely conclude the second sentence of our statement of faith that we're going to be dealing with this morning from 2 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, all Scripture is authoritative, infallible and without error. And so as we turn now to Second Peter, chapter one, verses 16 through 21, what we're going to see is that all Scripture is authoritative, infallible and without error. My friends, this is God's word. Paul said, or Peter says, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic Now I know that we looked at this passage briefly last week, but it's worth looking at it again in closer detail this morning. You see, we have a propensity to believe cleverly devised myths, to follow false teaching, to believe that God's Word is just the words of men. Because here's the thing, if we can highlight all of the difficult passages, if we can highlight all of the harsh activities that we see in the Bible that, that don't really kind of fit or correspond with our views about God, if we can highlight all of the, the problem texts or all of the things that run counter to what we see in science or, or what we feel in our hearts or what we see playing out in the world around us, then what we can do is we can reduce or reject the authority that it has over us. We can open wide the gates of salvation to open it to people that do not even believe. We We can live however we want to live and reject the fact that God even exists. Because here's the thing, guys. If the Bible taught that all people will be saved regardless of faith in Christ, regardless of how they lived in light of God, You better believe that every single person would gladly affirm its revelation, its authority, its unity, its inspiration, its infallibility, and its inerrancy. We'd say, bring it. We love this. The problem is that we reject the authority, that we want to live as if this is my world and I'm God, that we want to be able to stand over Scripture And many have then tried to attack the authority and infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture because in our hearts we are worshiping and serving creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. So I want to look at each of those three terms in order. First of all, the authority of Scripture. Now, it's a bit ironic that I'm preaching on the authority of Scripture from this passage because our liberal friends want to reject this passage, uh, the, the Second Peter over authorship. They want to hold that that Peter didn't really write this, this letter, uh, and they've provided many arguments regarding things like Second Peter's dependency on the Book of Jude, or is that Jude's dependency on the Book of Second Peter? right? Things about language or concepts within the text, they want to say, no, that couldn't have happened then at that early stage. It had to be much, much later because obviously we know exactly how people spoke and every word they happened to use 2,000 years ago in Koine Greek. You know? <laughs> Uh, there are various arguments for late date, including who these false teachers that, Paul's, uh, that Peter's dealing with, right? It's got to be the Gnostics, right? Because the Gnostics are, are the, the, the early church bad guy, right? If you don't know who it is, it's, it's the Gnostics, okay? So every, every false teacher that, that the Bible has to deal with has to be the Gnostics, and they came much later. So he couldn't have been dealing with any other false teachers, And then they also point to the later inclusion of 2 Peter within the canon of the Bible. Now, they do bring up some good points. They do. But it can't outweigh the internal evidence of the Scripture itself. Chapter 1, verse 1 says that it was written by the apostle Peter, referring to himself as Simeon Peter in a way that's very particular to the way that Peter refers to himself. In verses 12 through 15, he says that he's writing to them to establish them in truth and to stir them up to godliness by way of reminder because he's going to die soon and he wants them to recall these things. Now, uh, you know, these, these people that want to pretend to write for other people, they don't really get that specific in terms of where they are, what they're doing, what their stage of life is. In this passage, in verses 16 through 18, he speaks of his eyewitness account of Christ's transfiguration. Which is a glorious thing, but he really kind of like, he doesn't highlight it as much as all. And you would expect that if somebody's coming in later, pretending to to be who you are, they're really going to build this thing up. In in chapter 3, verse 15, he refers to Paul as a beloved brother, a contemporary apostle, and and a fellow writer of Scripture. And in chapter 3, verse 1, the letter claims to be the second one written by Peter. That's pretty straightforward, right? Now, there's also a lot of external evidence that you can read about in commentaries. I would recommend Tom Schreiner's commentary on 2 Peter. It kind of goes into greater detail on all these. But given all of the evidence, there's really no reason for us to doubt that Peter is the one who wrote this letter. But here's the thing. We're not the only ones that have to deal with this issues of questioning the authority and reliability and truthfulness of Scripture. Peter was also dealing with that issue. Peter himself is dealing with it. This is why 2 Peter was written, to encourage the churches that he had written to in 1 Peter not to be deceived by false teachers, but to continue to grow in the grace of God for godly living until the return of Christ. You see these false teachers throughout 2 Peter were rejecting the apostles' true and sound doctrine that Christ would return, that he would come again. They're saying, no, those passages can't possibly be true in speaking of Christ's return. They were questioning the reliability, the truthfulness, the inerrancy of those texts. They said it couldn't possibly be true because if Jesus was going to return again, it would have already happened. Because he said it was going to happen what? You know, two two hours from now or two weeks from now or two years from now or two decades from now? No, he didn't even give a time frame on it. But yet they they assumed it couldn't possibly be because we've been waiting around so long. And so, Uh, The apostles couldn't possibly be right. So what they began to do is just rejecting all of these passages that the the, the apostles were quoting in reference to the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, saying that can't possibly be true. So that's not what Jesus actually accomplished for us. What Jesus accomplished for us is that he died for sin and rose again so that we now get a free pass to live however we want to live. We can live in ungodly and immoral ways. We can delight ourselves and just live it up. He's not coming back. So it's all about this life here and now. They were, according to chapter 2, verse 10, indulging in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. And so Peter said, look, they're going to be judged. They're going to be judged and Christ is going to return again. But as for you, chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, the judgment of the wicked, the return of Christ, right, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, you continue in godliness. They will be judged. Christ will return. But as for right now, you continue in godliness. That's the message of Second Peter. And so this challenge to the authority, the reliability, and the truthfulness of God's word is nothing new. Peter himself is dealing with it right here in this passage. And in fact, it was there in the garden with Adam and Eve when the serpent in Genesis chapter three, verse one, turned to Eve and said, did God really say? Did God really say? And then he twisted God's word. Did God really say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No, God said you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he twisted and distorted God's word in order to make a mockery of it. Did God really say that? Can, can we really trust God's word? Can this, uh, is this just really just myth? Is this just a story? Is this just the concoctions of the will of man? Men's words about God. Friends, you you need to understand that these questions that are being posed by these supposed Bible scholars are right in league with Satan himself. Did God really say? These false teachers that Peter is dealing with were denying the absolute truth of God's word. They wanted to claim some of it for themselves while rejecting others. And they were trying to lead others into sin. And so Peter is encouraging these believers in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Look, God has given you all that you need for life and godliness in a true and abiding knowledge of him. And where do you get that knowledge from? You get it from his word. God has made this sure. He has made himself known. You can be certain that this is from God. That he has called you into his own glory and excellence through his precious promises. Where do we learn about those? And you can know exactly what they are. And as you hold to what God has given you, you actually become partakers in the divine nature and so put on godliness. Peter says, look, I am about to die. But before I depart, I want to remind you of these qualities. I want to establish you in the truth so that when I am gone, you will be able to recall these things at any time. And in our passage, verses 16 through 21, Peter then gives them two true and trustworthy authoritative assurances that this will be so. His eyewitness account of Christ's transfiguration and the prophetic word. And so in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ saying, look, these aren't made-up fables. These aren't stories about power that Jesus didn't really have. We weren't lying to you about the second coming of Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We beheld his splendor, his magnificence. We got a little foretaste of his glory when he was transfigured before us, when his clothes became radiant, right, intensely white, and he had that little chit-chat with Elijah and Moses about his exodus. We were there. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And so he's saying, Look, we had this powerful personal encounter. We saw the mighty acts of God and we heard his voice thunder down from the heavens, declaring that Jesus is his beloved son. We got a glimpse of the glory that will be revealed when Jesus comes again. And so you can be sure that he will indeed return in the day of the Lord. And yet, verse 19. We have something more sure. Takes it one step further. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's authoritative in and of itself, right? The, The early church's testimony about Jesus. Yeah, that's sufficient, but we got one more on you. We got something greater here. We have something more secure, more reliable, more dependable, more valid, more firm. That's what that word means. We have the prophetic word. Now, most immediately, he has the prophetic word regarding the great and terrible day of the Lord, the return of Christ in mind. But given what he says in verses 20 and 21 with regards to all prophecy of Scripture, and what he'll say later in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, with regards to Peter, or Paul's writings being included in with all the other Scriptures, the prophetic word would include all Scripture of the Old and New Testaments. Peter goes on to say that it is this prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. Now, guys, now what he doesn't mean is like, okay, you know, just kind of look, about, look at me for a minute, kind of think about it for like 30 seconds, and then move on to something else, right? He's, he's going much, much further than that. He's saying, look, you give heed to this. You give deference to this, right? If you're thinking this way, you need to think this way. Right? You need to pay careful attention to this. This has to be the priority for you. This is of a greater understanding. You're turning away from what you would consider to be your authority, your final standard for truth, and you place it here. You let that occupy yourself. You, let your, you, you devote yourself to that. You apply that to your life. That's what he means when he says pay attention to it, not wake up from dozing off for two seconds before you nod back to sleep. And he says this because it's objective and not just subjective, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, because all other options are darkness. This is the only light. But Psalm one nineteen one o five, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that lamp of God's word will shine until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The day dawning, meaning that great and terrible day of the Lord, the return of Christ, and the morning star rising in your hearts is the realization and the abiding joy that is personally yours when we, the church, behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ the star of Jacob, the scepter rising from Israel in fulfillment of Numbers 24 verse 17, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star that will one day we will behold in glory in Revelation 22 verse 16 in fulfillment of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of passages. And here's something more to consider. If the prophetic word is not the word of god like our liberal or neo orthodox friends want to say if it's just men's words about god or it bears witness to the word of god and may even become the word of god like our neo orthodox friends would say then how do you explain christ's fulfillment of scripture you can't you honestly cannot if scripture is flawed, if it is erring, if it is simply the words of men grasping at God, then every time the Christ himself or the apostles or other biblical authors say that Christ fulfilled such and such a passage, they are lying to you. No, the fulfillment of scripture requires divine foreknowledge. It requires God know the end from the beginning. The fulfillment of Scripture requires God's omniscience, that he knows all things, his omnisapience, that he's all-wise, his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, God's active providence and his governance over all things, and the full inspiration of his complete and verbal and written word to us. Otherwise, Christ cannot fulfill Scripture. This is why Scripture cannot be separated from the very nature of God. If not, then Peter is just lying to us. What he's doing is he's kind of flipping back through his Old Testament. He finds some nice little words, some little phrases that sound kind of cool, and he takes them and he tries to apply them to Jesus in ways that they were never meant to be applied. He's lying to you. Because here's the thing, if, if God is not inspiring those Old Testament authors, if he's not inspiring Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever else wrote in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ, and the, he wasn't in, inspiring the, the apostles and the, and the New Testament writers to recognize that that was speaking about Jesus, then the whole thing is a wash. Because Moses was not speaking about Jesus, He was speaking about God thousands and thousands of years beforehand. He had no idea. And here here Peter and the other apostles are saying, no, Moses was speaking about Jesus. Well, they're wrong. They're lying to you. The whole thing, all Scripture, has to either stand or fall as the Word of God. Which is why what Peter says next in verse 20 is so important. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, and that's no prophecy of God that was written down ages ago. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So they weren't making it up. Not like these apostles, were just sitting down with their Old Testament scrolls, rolling it out. Oh, you know, let's talk about. Oh, you know, Jesus. I, I could see this fit with Jesus being sort of the old, Old Testament servant, suffering servant of God. Let's just apply that to him. No, none of that happens according to someone's own interpretation. Not making it up. They're not explaining it however they want. Just like these false teachers were accusing them of. Verse twenty-one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, we cannot divorce the work of the Holy Spirit from the hermeneutic process. I hear this happen time and time again. I read it in many of these books on hermeneutics, and you know, it's, it's can, can an unbeliever come to the text and understand the words on the page? Yes, they can. But do they have eyes to see to properly interpret it? They do not. Because the, the same Holy Spirit that inspires the authors, the same Holy Spirit that inspires the writing themselves, is the same Holy Spirit that has to inspire their interpretation in order for them to get it right. An unbeliever can read the Bible, understand what it says, and reject it. They can hold to false beliefs, false worldviews, or false teaching. And that word that's carried right there in verse 21 was used four times in this passage. The voice born from heaven that declared, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, in verses 17 and 18, is the same voice that produced all prophecy as men speaking from God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophecy is the product of the very voice of God, so that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. All scripture is a declaration then of God's authority. The Holy Spirit carried these men along, not, not in terms of dictation, right? So so that's that's the thing, like those those Scoffers, they want to say, well, you know, you have to hold the dictation theory and blah, 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 and they just kind of dismiss it that way. I don't know a single evangelical that holds to dictation theory. This idea that, like, you know, Peter went into a trance and woke up and in his own pen was there was first and second Peter. Or, or that Peter just sat down at his desk, you know, with his little those little typewriter things that the, the clerks at, at at you know in the courtrooms use and just like shorthand taking dictation. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. That's not the way it works. No, these men spoke. They were actually the ones speaking, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the idea of concursus or confluence or concurrence. Nobody can really agree on the terminology. But as they were. Writing in as Peter was writing in his own agency, God sovereignly worked through his life up to that point. Let's not neglect God's providence in, in everything that happened in Peter's life up to that point to prepare him for that moment of writing, but also at that moment in inspiring and 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 working in his heart and mind so that as Peter pinned the very words that he desired to pin, the very words of God were the ones that were. Given in what he wrote. Friends, this is an application of compatibilism, of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But God's purpose in these writings of the biblical authors was different, say, than his sovereign purpose in my writing this sermon. Because scripture was given as God's infallible and unerring communication that has progressed throughout history from creation to John's vision of revelation that is authoritative for all God's people for all time. Now, when I preach with what is consistent with what's in the Word of God, then yeah, you're bound by it, but not to my words, but to the Word of God. But for the very fact that this is the written Word of God, the prophetic Word, it is by nature the authoritative Word of God. And so to disbelieve or to disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't take wisdom, that we have to properly interpret the text in light of Christ. But to disobey Scripture is to disobey God. And so what that means is that you are left with a choice. And it's interesting here because the word heresy Gets its derivative from the word choice. Heresy is a choice. The choice that Peter leaves us with, are you going to treat the word of God as a cleverly devised myth? As simply words written by the will of man? Or will you turn your mind? Will you pay attention? Will you give heed or deference to the prophetic word of God? Those are your three options. Are you going to take God at his word and trust him when he says that no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit? Or are you actually going to try to stand in authority over God's word and declare it to be myth, declare it to be from man, declare maybe this one or that one over there is true, but not this one over here? Or will you recognize that scripture as an expression of God's will to us possesses the supreme right to define what we are to believe and how we are to live godly lives by faith in him? Those are your options. So choose wisely. Because only one is a lamp shining in the darkness. Only one is a lamp can shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ upon your heart. The others will leave you in eternal chains of gloomy darkness. Now Peter spends all of chapter 2 describing the condemnations these false teachers will experience for rejecting God's prophetic word. And So you need to ask yourself, did God actually say, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Because if so, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. So what's going to be your authority? I hope you understand that something is operating as an authority in your life. Something has final say as to what you are going to do, what you're going to believe, how you're going to think, How are you going to live? Something is the ultimate assessor and and deemer of truth in your life. What's going to be that final ground? Is it the world's notions of intellectualism, science, history, biology, or psychology? Maybe maybe it's your family. Maybe it's traditions that you've held to, or, or maybe your culture's view on God. Maybe it's the notion... Uh, the vain notion of your own intellect, education, and, or rational faculties. But something in your life has final say, has the last word on what you're going to think, on what you're going to believe, on what you're going to do. And So who has final say with you? Are biology, physics, astronomy, psychology, history, and theology, or your own personal presuppositions going to be equal or of greater authority in your life than God's word. Apparently it was for that writer of that article that I read earlier. Are you going to hold to the cleverly devised myth of macroevolution, or are you going to attempt to stand like these false teachers and authority over scripture? Or will you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and take him at his word? There is so much more could be said about the authority of God's Word, but it should be clear to us. God has revealed Himself clearly, truly, faithfully, inspiring both authors and the writings themselves for all of Scripture to such a degree that we can be sure that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so since that first point of the authority of Scripture was so long, I'm going to compensate for you by making it a really short second point on the infallibility of Scripture. Now, it used to be the case that the word infallibility and the word inerrancy were interchangeable. In fact, uh, John Frame in his book, The Doctrine of the Word of God, would argue that infallibility is a stronger word than the word inerrancy. Because the word, infall- word inerrancy means that there are no errors. The word infallibility means that there can be no errors. There's not even the possibility. It's one thing that says, you know, well, it's possible for it to have errors, but it doesn't. It's another thing to say, nope, it's not possible. And that's what the original meaning of these terms were. But over time... Modern theologians beginning in the 1960s began insisting on redefining that word along with the doctrines of revelation, inspiration, and the unity of Scripture so that it actually means less than inerrancy. Those that have redefined the term infallible would hold that infallibility is the belief that what the Bible says regarding matters of faith and Christian practice is wholly useful and true. It is the belief that the Bible is completely trustworthy as a personal guide to salvation and the life of faith and will not fail to accomplish its purpose. And so it has more to do with the reliability that God will not fail us in accomplishing his saving purposes and that the Bible is trustworthy not to lead us astray, not to lead us to fall away from God. And so basically, if you stick with the scriptures, even though they were written by men and they contain errors, uh, you're still better off because, you know, you're going to win because God wins. Love wins. So we can praise God, they would say, for scripture because it's infallible. Now, there's no doubt from this passage that that Peter believes that, right? The prophetic word is more sure, more certain, and more reliable than his own personal experience of the transfiguration. No doubt about it. Uh, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, sings, "...the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple." The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 119 is a 176 verse song in praise of the infallibility of God's Word. And so, of course, our our Christ-professing liberal or neo-Orthodox friends want to believe that this is true as well, that, you know, the Bible is a profitable guide for matters of faith and practice. But can it be from God? Can it be true can it really be infallible and at the same time be a collection of flawed, infallible human writings? Which is why we have to turn our attention to the third point on the inerrancy of Scripture. See, I promise that one would be short. The inerrancy is derived from the very nature of God who cannot and does not err in anything that he says or does. So inerrancy, you have to understand, is a derivative doctrine based upon the very nature of who God is and what God says. Psalm 31 verse 5 describes God as the God of truth. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 speaks of God who never lies. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 describes two unchangeable things, God's oath and his promise in which it is impossible for God to lie. Scripture also says in Numbers 23 verse 19 that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 28, you are God and your words are true. Psalm 26, I'm sorry, Psalm 12 verse 6 Uh, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times, meaning it's, it's perfect. It's purified perfectly. Psalm 18, verse 30, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And in verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Proverbs 30, verse 5, declares that every word of God proves true. Jesus said in in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He says in John chapter 10, verse 35, that scripture cannot be broken. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And we could keep going on and on and on and on. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. The, The one spirit that inspired both the authors and their writings is called the Spirit of Truth. The gospel itself is called the Word of Truth. You see, the truth of Scripture is in every way consistent with the nature and character, the purposes and promises of God to such an extreme degree that to discredit the character of Scripture is an attack upon the very nature of God who cannot err. It is an attack upon Christ, who is the truth, the Word incarnate. It is an attack upon the Holy Spirit, who authored, who inspired both the authors and their writings as the Spirit of truth, and it is an attack upon the gospel itself. You cannot say, I hold to the gospel, but I reject that this is the word of God. You cannot. Either it's inerrant or it's not. But if it's errant, you cannot be saved. Inerrancy means that the scriptures in their original writings are true in everything it affirms as true. So, for example, you know, the Bible records lies of the wicked. It's not saying that those lies are truths, it's just the, the, the recounting of their lie that's true. <laughs> the Bible, when properly interpreted in light of the culture and the means of communication through which it was developed at the time of its composition, is completely true in all that it affirms to the degree of precision intended by the author in all matters regarding God and His creation. Well, friends, that doesn't mean that, that Scripture is a science book. It's not like we go to the Bible for, for an exhaustive study of physics or astronomy. But it does clearly declare their origin. And the one who sustains the universe in such a way that scientific observations are even possible. God created the universe. God upholds the universe by the word of his power. And God always tells the truth. And so when God says that he created everything from nothing by his word, that's what we hold to. When God says that he flooded the earth, that's what we hold to. When God says that he raised the dead to life, we hold to that. Do we know the ins and outs of how that is possible? No. But neither does science. I'm yet to see the scientists come up to me and explain how resurrection is possible. The Christian scientists that would say, this is how that came to be. Swoon theory. No, that's not death to life. God... Created Adam with apparent age. Adam was created as a man, so is it not possible that God created everything else, all of life, everything in the universe, including the Earth, with apparent age also? And if Adam only lived so long, and the Earth continued on longer than that, could it not also possibly be that the Earth appears older than what it is? It, this, this is not it doesn't require rocket science to 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 recognize the possibilities here. At some point, right, our, our, our erring friends, they they're trusting, you know, either in their own reason or scientific observation, want to try to rationalize or explain every supernatural or miraculous occurrence away they want to try to minimize it down to something that is is rational something that we can just kind of say okay yeah that's that's pretty natural that's pretty normal i can get behind that but you can't have faith and do that because here's the thing right God who has made himself known, like at some point you have got to take him at his word and and his word for all of the supernatural events in the Bible because you cannot be a Christian and deny the miraculous works of, of Christ or his resurrection from the grave. Otherwise, all you're left with is a brilliant man who cannot save. So in all your efforts to say, you know what, I'm not going to start like you're, you're arguing from faith. I'm arguing from reason. Guess what? You can't reason away every miracle. You reject the resurrection of Christ, you're not a Christian. Even if we boil it down to that one right there. And sure, God had to accommodate his truth for the universe to a pre-industrialized people, but they are not Neanderthals. It's not like God had to accommodate himself to man to such a degree that when he spoke throughout history to people, he had to speak to them with, with ugs and oos. Right? That, that, you know, we read Genesis, but Genesis is really ug-ug-ooh-ooh-ooh, ugh, ooh, ooh, ugh, ooh, 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 ooh. But come on. And you add to that, this God who made himself known to his people throughout history of the world is also the God of divine foreknowledge. Who knows the end from the very beginning, who possesses all knowledge, all wisdom, all authority, all power, who providentially governs all things. And so it's not as though when God accommodated himself to mankind in giving the creation account that he simply forgot to leave out the development of scientific investigation, as if after God communicated himself to his people, he was like, oh, you know, I, I, I forgot, left out science. Well, that's gonna be embarrassing because one day they're gonna kind of, they're gonna start to figure the universe out and, and boy, am I gonna have to, I'm gonna be in some trouble then. You think that God didn't have that in mind, our capacity to, to explore the world around us when he said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's utter foolishness to think otherwise. That these people are just so dumb that I've just got to give them a myth about creating the first parents out of the dust of the ground and to put them in the garden with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but eventually they're going to figure the universe out. and that's Boy, that's going to be awkward for me. And so is that which has been made Or the body of knowledge that is possible because of this creator sustaining the world in such a way of greater authority than the one who made them possible. Is the limited understanding that we have received in science truly more valid, truly more certain, truly more fixed in the heavens than the Lord of all creation? Or can we be certain that God made all there is because God said so, and it is not possible for God to lie? But still others would reject inerrancy because of apparent discrepancies within the text of Scripture itself. There appear to be contradictions regarding the length of king's reigns, the size of armies, how many of the returning exiles were counted, whether the disciples were sent out with staffs and sandals or not, now just go barefoot and, and yes, these are difficulties we, we We recognize that right? Some of them have simple solutions, like copyist errors, right in those those preceding manuscripts, there were just copyist errors people's eyes drop down they misspell some things, they kind of write down a number wrong, just like you and me. Some we can give equally plausible solutions for, but we cannot say this is why this discrepancy appears with 100% absolute certainty, because we just don't know enough. And so, should we conclude then that because there are discrepancies that we cannot give an absolute 100% unfailing account for that the Bible then contains errors and so it cannot be God's inspired words but the the fallible words of men that carries with it the same authority in your life as First Clement or Augustine's Confessions or even my sermons. Did God guarantee us that he would answer all of our endless probing about any number of details regarding himself, his word, or his creation in ways that we would find completely 100% lifelong satisfactory right here and right now according to my demands. Did God do that in such a way that we would never have any questions, never have any doubts, never have any challenges to our faith whatsoever? Did God promise that he would bow the knee to our authority and accommodate himself to us at such a level as to make us all-knowing and all-wise? Or did he call us to take him at his word? Perhaps the reason why we find so many dark places in Scripture is because that for the most part, there are so many dark places in our hearts. That in reality, that desire to live as if this is my world and I am God is far more prevalent than we want to say that it is. Still others might argue that inerrancy is a modern philosophical notion that has pushed, been pushed too far by those nasty fundamentalists and those epistemological simpletons from Princeton. That the Bible nor the church ever said that Scripture is inerrant, and therefore you're pushing your idea, your philosophy, your, your notions too far. Well, history disagrees with them. I've already proven that Scripture disagrees with them. Clement of Rome, who died in 95 AD, wrote that when you have studied the Scripture, which is the truth and is inspired by the Holy Spirit, you realize that there is nothing wrong or misleading in it. Irenaeus declared that we should be most properly assured that the Scriptures are indeed perfect since they were spoken by the Word of God and His Spirit. Justin Martyr asserted, I am entirely convinced that no Scripture contradicts another. If presented with with an instance that seems contradictory, I shall admit rather that I do not understand what is recorded, and I shall strive to persuade those who imagine that Scriptures are contradictory to be rather of the same opinion as myself. Origen says that the Scriptures are truly at perfect concord. Athanasius affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture to extend in accuracy to the merest stroke and tittle. Augustine testified, I do most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. Elsewhere, he wrote, therefore, everything written in Scripture must be believed absolutely. And he says much, 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 much more than that. I could go on with quotes from Chrysostom, Jerome, Gregory the Great, Anselm of Canterbury, even Thomas Aquinas, who Luther called the great windbag because he held to philosophy over Scripture, said that all which is spoken of in the Holy Spirit is spoken by God. The Reformers like Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin, even the Catholic Church of their day held to the inerrancy of Scripture, it's the denial of inerrancy that is the modern philosophical notion. Even the well-known liberal Harvard Bible scholar, Cursip Lake, had to admit, "...it is a mistake often made by educated persons who happen to have but little knowledge of historical theology to suppose that fundamentalism is a new and strange form of thought. It is nothing of the kind." It is the partial and uneducated survival of a theology which once universally was held by all Christians. He goes on to say, how many were there, for instance, in the Christian churches in the 18th century who doubted the infallible, and he's using that word to mean inerrant, right? That it cannot err, Uh, infallible inspiration of Scripture. He says, perhaps a few, but very few. No, the fundamentalist may be wrong. I think that he is But it is we who have departed from the tradition, not he. And I am sorry for the fate of anyone who tries to argue with the fundamentalist on the basis of authority. The Bible and the corpus theologicum of the church is on the fundamentalist side. And so he's saying there, don't argue with a Bible believer about the authority because the Bible and the entire body of theology for the history of the church are on their side. I reject it, but don't argue with them, because historical theology supports them. Well, at least this guy's honest. He refuses to believe the Bible, and he says that the church is wrong. Friends, one cannot doubt the Bible without far-reaching loss. The loss of the fullness of truth and the loss of the fullness of life. To reject, to minimize, to twist, to distort, to try to redefine or reduce or, or live in willful ignorance and instability towards the Scriptures, according to Peter's own words in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, is to result in your own destruction. Destruction. The result is that you are showing the true nature of your own heart. That you are still dead, enslaved, and condemned by your sin. Only a fool could think that he could stand in authority over God's words. But Peter says right here in verse 19, we have something more certain, more Firm, more valid, more reliable, more trustworthy, more sure. The prophetic word has been verified by in its truth claims by God. It has been confirmed in, by the heavenly places, it has been proven effective. It is the fool that says in his heart that there is no God. It is the fear of the Lord that is beginning of wisdom and that is manifest first and foremost by taking God at his word. And so it is better than to humble yourself and to trust God. You see, you cannot faithfully complete the exegetical process if you cannot faithfully come to and interpret God's word without what Calvin called the spectacles of faith. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 said, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, meaning your reasonable faculties cannot get you there. But taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so, we need to humble ourselves. We need to repent and believe. We need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to receive God's Word And to understand it for what it truly is. Now I began with a quote. So I'll end with one as well. This time from J.I. Packer. He wrote, God then does not profess to answer in Scripture all the questions that we in our boundless curiosity would like to ask about Scripture. He tells us merely as much as he sees that we need to know him as a basis for our life of faith. And he leaves unsolved some of the problems raised by what he tells us in order to teach us a humble trust in his truthfulness. The question, therefore, that we must ask ourselves when faced with these puzzles is not, is it reasonable to imagine that this is so? Or as Satan asked, did God actually say? But is it reasonable to accept God's assurances that it is so? He said that the question carries its own answer. Is it reasonable to take God at his word and to believe that he has spoken the truth even though I cannot fully comprehend what he has said? We should not abandon faith in anything God has taught us merely because we cannot solve all the problems which it raises. Our own intellectual competence is not the test and the measure of divine truth. It is not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding, but to believe in order that we may understand. Friends, do not be deceived. By the question that the serpent asked to Eve, did God actually say? For the last 300 years, God's word has been under attack by some of the greatest intellects of the critical scholastic wolves, many of whom would consider themselves to be part of the sheepfold. And though our loving and gracious father is big enough to open himself up And to invite their harshest criticisms. And he does. And it stands. Do not think for a second that God will be mocked. He says in Jeremiah, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And so you've got to ask yourself, are you going to come to God's word as a refuge? Or will you find it a hammer And a fire against you. You see, the scriptures lay claim to their total truthfulness and flawless purity. That is, they lay claim to their inerrancy. Nowhere does the Bible indicate that these teachings pertain only to certain parts or to certain themes. Or that it is only infallible in terms of its usefulness for faith and practice. Submission to the teachings of Scripture, therefore, entails a recognition of its inerrancy. Moreover, this doctrine logically upholds the final authority of all of Scripture. Friends, only truth has authority. And because the Scriptures are completely true, they command ultimate authority. So may we receive them for what they are. That all scripture is authoritative, infallible, and without error. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Father, I pray that your word would do its work in us in humbling us before you. God, may we not dare to stand as scoffers, as critics, as as rebels to your will and your ways. May we not, like the serpent, ask the question, did, did God actually say, and try to, try to distort and twist and pervert and reduce and redefine your word into something that we find more palatable to us? Instead, we ask you to speak. We ask for hearts and minds to believe. We ask for the work of the Spirit to illuminate us so that we would not be as the natural person who cannot understand this because it's folly to them, but to spiritually discern because we have the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would do this work in us so that we trust you with hearts of children. I know that though every, every question that we have is, not necessarily going to be answered in this life or immediately as we would wish it to be, but that we would look at your character, we would look at your nature, we would look at all that you have done and are doing and will do, and that we would rest in knowing that you are the God of truth, that your word is true, that Christ is the truth, that your word is revealed through the Spirit of truth, so that we can take you at your word so that when Scripture speaks, we know that you speak. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.